Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to this, the third installment of The Long and Short, discussing a sequence of long poems and short stories written in English over the last 150 years or so. And as always, we are considering these works with an eye on the rich archive of essays, reviews and other pieces to be found in the back catalogue of the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry and I teach English at Balliol College in Oxford and I'm talking, as usual, to Mark Ford, poet, critic and professor of English literature at University College London. And our subject today is the American or perhaps the Anglo-American writer Henry James. But Mark, before we get on to James, I wonder if it might be useful for us to say a few words about the short story as a genre. This is the first short story writer we are considering in this series. And it's quite an interesting phenomenon, isn't it, that the phrase short story as the name of a literary genre only really develops in the end of the 19th century. And I suppose it must grow from the same kind of literary culture as all the poems that we are considering. And I know that you and I both admire John Bailey's book about the short story, where he talks about the characteristics of this new form as it's beginning to establish itself in the late Victorian period. And he talks very charismatically, very with great kind of characteristic charisma about the way that the short story is a thing that has secrets and a thing where, where nothing is explicitly divulged. It's about the capturing of moments of experience, what Wolf might call moments of being or Hardy might call moments of vision or Joyce might call epiphanies. But it's always involved in some kind of poetic sort of self-consciousness about its own proceedings as a piece of prose, a kind of incompleteness that often occurs at the ends of, of short stories, which I think we might discover as we're talking about these James short stories today. Um, what, what do you make of, of the fact that the short story emerges at this particular moment, and, and what relation do you think it has with those poems that we're otherwise looking at in the series? I think short stories share with the poem a sort of reaction against the novel. What they've got in common is that they're not Dickensian or George Eliot-style novels in which you get a large pageant of characters whose lives develop across many episodes, across many years in George Eliot's case, and which portray life, society, in, in a kind of general panoptic way. The, the short story and, the, I mean, the preeminent form of the Victorians poets was the dramatic monologue and you can see Maud as a series of dramatic monologues collaged together to create a, an account of the degeneration of, of this particular character who kind of ends up being a warmongering maniac by the end of Maud and often I think we'll find in our short stories they do culminate in some climax which isn't tragic necessarily but is somehow extreme or excruciating certainly excruciating in the Aspen Papers and the Lesson of the Master and the Figure in the Carpet that we'll be looking at today. So often both the short story and the long poem allow an exploration of the song of an individual self, to use Whitman's term. Of course, Whitman makes his self very representative of American the American ideal. And in that, we'll find that he does connect a little bit with the vanished hero of the Aspen Papers, Geoffrey Aspen, whose papers give the novella its name. 
So I suppose what we're saying is, of course, there were short fictions beforehand, like you know, Afropen's Orinoco or the four books that make up Gulliver's Travels or whatever it might be. But what is happening at, towards the end of the 19th century is a very sort of self-conscious, almost sort of poetic form of prose fiction that's coming into play. And I suppose James is really one of the founders of this new idiom or this new genre. Yes, and Poe and Melville before him had written tales, and the difference between a tale and a short story is not an easy one to define. But certainly, it, to some extent, the popularity of short stories comes with the increasing print culture of the mid-19th century, that these magazines, like The Atlantic, which was edited by his friend William Dean Howells, needed lots of short fiction to fill up their pages. And of course, Dickens's short stories were terrifically popular as well. So the ways in which the magazine culture had expanded meant that there was a market for this. And in fact, James would make his money from his short stories more than from sales of his novels, alas, and we'll come on to James's relationship with the market, which was, apart from Daisy Miller and Portrait of a Lady, not a particularly happy one. OK, well, let's take up the first of, of these James stories, The Aspen Papers, which I think is one of his great masterpieces, isn't it? First published in 1888. We know from his criticism that James was, was very well read in the poetry of his century. He doesn't, as far as I've discovered in preparation for our chat today, he doesn't say anything specifically about Maud. But there are obviously quite interesting parallels, aren't there, between the narrative structure of the Aspen Papers, as it were, and, and the narrative structure of Maud, which is to say that they are both told by a person whose name we never learn, and they are both stories of obsession. Absolutely. And both were sort of master diag at diagnosing obsession, particularly male obsession and the different forms that it takes and both have a sort of romance built into their narratives though it's in both cases a failed romance but <laughs> the narrator of the Aspen Papers wants it to be a failed romance that's the wonderful kind of climax of the story which derives from an anecdote which he was told about Claire Claremont when they were living in he was living in Florence in the 1880s and shortly before Claire Claremont who had been the mistress of Byron was the half sister of Mary Shelley, had all these papers relating to Shelley and Byron and a rather unscrupulous American named Captain Silsby. Silsby. Yes, he did exactly as the narrator of the Aspen Papers does. He infiltrates their house as a kind of lodger in the hope of being on the scene when Claire Claremont dies. But as in the Aspen Papers, the price is too high, he has to marry a niece of Claire Claremont's who is 50 and like Miss Tina is not a price that he is willing to pay. So this story, like many of James's short stories, emerged from something he'd been told. He, he had this kind of astonishing radar, didn't he, and would keep in his notebooks all these little mini-narratives, which he thought of as Don A, things that were given, that he would then work up into these stories or indeed novels. So while there are pieces in the LRB, which won by Mary McCarthy, that complain that James lacks reality, in fact, many of his stories had their basis in something that had actually happened. Yes, the notebook entry for the Aspen Papers, the very, very first seed of the Aspen Papers, is really exemplary of what you're talking about there. The entry reads, The interest would be in some price that the man has to pay that the old woman or the survivor sets upon the papers, his hesitations, his struggle, for he really would give almost anything. 
So this is a tale of total sort of literary obsession, isn't it? And it's also, I suppose, a tale about or a story about the extraordinary value that James himself set upon papers and upon letters in particular. I mean, he was a notorious destroyer, wasn't he, of his own papers, something that Ruth Bernard Yeasel brings out in a piece that she wrote for the LRB about James, that he was extraordinarily keen in his will that no one should trouble his bones in the same way that Shakespeare said, cursed be he who moves my bones. Yes, he would write at the bottom of letters, burn this, or if you have a candle nearby, put it in the flame. And yet, the ongoing edition of James's letters is going to run to some 140 volumes. Yeah, so the, pr- the problem's not scarcity, <laughs> the problem is too much. <laughs> um, so I think this issue dramatises the larger anxiety of the relationship between the private and the public which is so central, particularly to James in the 1880s, when newspapers were becoming increasingly popular and, as he saw, vulgar. And the vulgarisation of literature is a theme of all the stories that we'll be looking at today. And they're all about writers. So he was obsessed with writing what we would call these days meta-fiction stories about writers. And the enemy is often the press or the publishing scoundrel of the Aspen Papers who wants to bring into the public domain things that should remain private. Um, So James was extremely conscious of the extent, I think, to which his own stories grew out of private anxieties or uncertainties at some secret which is not disclosed. In recent years, that secret has often been figured in relation to his homoerotic attractions to young men. But all three of our stories concern some kind of private... (laughs) Um, motivation which creates the work of art yet somehow has to be preserved from prying eyes. Thanks for listening to this extract from The Long and Short, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.